All right, you guys know we're going through the book of Matthew. Uh, we're continuing that series. I'm going to show you where we're going to go right now so you guys get an idea. Here's where we are. We spent the last few weeks as we've entered back into the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 8, finishing off a little bit of 7, dealing with Jesus' power and authority. Last week, we looked at the cost of discipleship. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the sending out of the twelve. We got quite a bit of scripture to go through tonight, but if we don't get through it because we're too interactive, fine, we'll stop. Here's what my hope is, is to do a few more weeks in Matthew. And then at the end of this month, very beginning of next month on November 2nd, take a break from the book of Matthew and take a topic that I think is kind of timely due to the fact that the following couple days later is the election, just to talk about what is our role in political engagement as Christians. Because we've talked about that here in a couple series and I want to come back to it from a different angle that I've been studying so we can look at that right before the election. Hopefully we'll tell you who to vote for. Just tell you, like, just go here, go home and do this, right? No, we don't do that. We, can you imagine if we had a political debate with this group? I mean, you know, we debate enough on things that we think we know. Imagine political debate in this group would be amazing. So that's kind of where we're going. So you got an idea of the roadmap of where we're doing, all right? Last week we covered the cost of discipleship. And if you remember the analogy that I used in part coming out of that text was the analogy of a vessel that's completely filled up. And I like this picture because it's filled up with so many different things. They form kind of a color and they're kind of nice, but they're filled. And last week I really tried to bring home the message that oftentimes in our life, we on our own choose to fill up our life with lots of stuff that prevents God from having anywhere to use us if we're really supposed to be vessels meant for his purposes. That was kind of the place we left off last week, looking seriously at our own life. And that's why I encourage you to go to our Wednesday night group because one of the things we're going to be talking about is those things that we can maybe get out of the way so that we can better serve. But some of you have been frustrated, like, I don't feel like we're doing enough. Sure, because most of us are so filled to the brim, there's no room for anything to go in there. I told you last week that one of our friends from this group, Brianna, who's been serving some time in prison, has been struggling with this very same issue, and she's been writing back and forth, and I asked her permission again to like, find out like, how she's doing. And she's been struggling with this idea of God teaching her things. She wrote me this letter. I just want to read this one little bit of it. She says, I have learned to put my trust in God. That's where it starts. He will light the way through discipline and hard times which she writes quite a bit about. He's always there listening. He is doing some wondrous things on me right now. He put me in this place so that I would listen. I would never have had this kind of relationship with him on the outside. I never had enough time. Now my cup is just about empty, don't you think? I thought that was just so interesting that it takes some people to a place where they would never expect to be for them to be so emptied out that they have nothing to do but sit there for 22 hours a day, as she describes at length, just listening and talking and writing. And her discipline right now is to write down all the things she's hearing because she thinks as soon as she gets out, she'll start to forget them again. And I think that's a very good discipline on our part. Sometimes we hear things and we know what we're supposed to do, but then busyness and life and everything else just creeps right in and we just forget about them. We just lay them aside. Her discipline is to write them down so that later she can keep reading them again. Because I know as soon as she gets out, she'll go right back into busyness and fill up her life all the way back up again. Just kind of a post little footnote from last week. Let's move forward. Tonight, sending out the 12. So 
here's what we're going to do. On your card, take out your card. Don't look. Don't open your Bible. Write down the names of the 12 disciples. George Barna tells us that most Christians cannot write down any more than three. We're going to prove that this group is much smarter. We're going to get to at least four. Write your name on the card. And then write down as many disciples as you can think of. And yes, there is a prize for the person who gets the most. It just didn't bring the prize with me. But trust me, your reward is waiting for you in heaven. All right, if you're competing for the prize, write your name on it so I know who did it. If you're too embarrassed to write your name, you don't have to. You could just turn it in anyway just so that I'll laugh later. So just have some fun. Pass them up. Yeah, we're going to do it, but you've got to pass them in first because otherwise then the whole thing, the whole giving the answers before you give me the, uh, the quiz back thing. Let's come back together and pray that God opens his word to us. Lord, illuminate your scripture for us. Holy Spirit, as you preserve these words, as you inspired these words, as you've given them as a gift to us to know you, Lord, illuminate them for us tonight so that we might know you better. Open your scriptures. Give us new insight into things that we might have read and not seen before. We pray this in faith in your name. Amen. Last week we ended with these words. He saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The closing words of chapter 9. And as Matthew arranges his text, he shows us that the Lord did this right away. He didn't wait. And here we start with, he called the 12 disciples. And he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. How many did you guys get? Right. In some books, there's another Judas. There's, you may find the name Nathaniel. So let's go through who these people are, because that might clear up some of the confusion as to who these are. First, I think we all know Peter, right? Everybody knows him. He was the, he's, he's actually listed here first. Peter had a special role among the apostles. He was the first to identify the Christ, at least as it's recorded. He was given authority along with the others, but he was also the first leader of the church after Pentecost. He, of course, denied Jesus three times. We know the history of Peter. First and second Peter are attributed to him, so we have some knowledge. Mark is closely associated with Peter as well as a gospel. So that's Peter. We kind of know who he is. Who's Andrew? Well, he was Peter's brother, and Andrew was a fisherman. He was one of the first people that joined Jesus. Remember, if we look back in Matthew, we already covered the story of how, how Peter, Simon, and Peter is also referred to as Cephas sometimes, so Simon and Andrew, being brothers, left their boats and followed Jesus. We kind of know a little bit about them. Andrew was also the first of John the Baptist's disciples to come over and start serving the Lord. That's probably how they knew each other. All right, how about this guy here, James, son of Zebedee? Who is he? One of, he's another fisherman, and he's 
not the same guy as James who wrote the epistle of James. He's just one of the disciples. All right, so it's important to make that distinction because we have a number of Jameses going on here. Uh, James ended his life being executed very early on. We have that recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 12. So he was executed by Herod. Uh, we have John, son of Zebedee, his brother, who is the disciple John, of course, and he's the one that wrote the book of John. It's attributed to him. First, second, and third letters of John, the Revelation, also is attributed to him. So that's who we're talking about in that one. So some of you might have gotten him. Philip. Yeah. <laughs> Philip, kind of a shady path. No, no. <laughs> um, Philip comes along with Simon and Andrew, Simon Peter. He grew up in the same city, Bethsaida, or Bethsaida, which is really means just the house of fishing. So they were all fishermen. A lot of these guys were growing up around the Sea of Galilee. That's where they met him. Now, Bartholomew is the guy that some gospel writers believe is also referred to as Nathaniel. So if you see his name in another gospel, that may be the same person. The names derive from the same place. He's referenced in John 21, probably as Nathaniel, and he's a companion of Philip there. And you'll notice that Matthew lays them out two by two. They're going out. They're being sent out two by two. So the fact that in another gospel you see Philip going out with Nathaniel gives us clues that it might be the same guy as Bartholomew. Uh, Thomas. Who's Thomas? He's the guy that doubted. Remember him? Thomas, if there was anybody riding the short bus, it was Thomas, okay? Thomas was a little slow, right? Thomas was the guy who needed the proof. And Thomas is also the guy who famously, after Jesus delivers one of his most famous lines and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The very next verse from Thomas is, Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. I mean, Jesus just finished saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's like, how about you just show him to us, and that would be enough. And of course... That leads to further explanation by Jesus. So Thomas, maybe he wasn't getting it all the time. He actually, from tradition, Thomas may be the guy who went to India to start preaching and planting churches in India. That's at least in church tradition, that's pretty reliable. Matthew, we know. He's the tax collector. He's already referenced his story earlier in this gospel. He's probably the guy that this, you know, this gospel is attributed to this Matthew. So he doesn't say much about himself. We kind of known him by his writing. Here's some people we don't know much about. James, son of Alphaeus. We don't know much about him. He's mentioned once in this gospel. Thaddeus, also not known very much about him. There's Simon the Zealot. All we know is that he's referenced as Simon the Zealot. Some people think that meant he was part of that movement called the Zealots. Most people think he was just a zealous person. That's why he's referred to that way. Okay, but there was a political movement that was trying to overthrow Rome. Was he involved? I don't know. Luke calls him out that way. The book of Matthew, even it says Simon the Zealot in the NIV, it actually doesn't actually say that in the Greek. It's been just added. I'm not sure why they did that in this translation of Matthew. And then, of course, our famous guy at the end there, Judas Iscariot, known for his betrayal of Jesus, the treasurer of the group. There's a lot of debate about what Iscariot means. It probably just identifies what city he came from. That's a, a marker of where he came from. But some people think it means villain or assassin. It has some sort of other meaning, probably attributed later. Of course, by the time Matthew's writing this gospel, they know. So how many people got five or more? That beats like the national average completely for Christians. So that's pretty good. We got at least a number of people who did that. Uh, when George Barnett did his research, he found that many, I don't know how many many is, could not name more than three. So that was pretty good. 
And they named some goofy ones. All right, let's dive in a little deeper into Scripture. So these 12 are being sent out, starting in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. I'm going to tell you at first, the kingdom of heaven is near sounds familiar. We've heard it a number of times in Matthew already. Okay? John kind of stole those words out there. Jesus uses those words. Now he's telling his disciples to continue the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, that's my part. Let's hear from you. You see anything in here that bothers you in this passage? There's something we should take a deeper look at? Yeah. Yeah, why would he say that? What does that mean? Don't go to the Gentiles. So he doesn't want the Gentiles to be saved? Is he trying just to make sure that only his people find out? Yeah. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile, and this and this and this, and first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, and like over again. Yeah, what, what, what verse is that? Do you know? Is this just some <laughs> verse somewhere? I was talking about this kid today. I don't remember. All right, well, we have part, we have a whole theology of how Judaism and the Gentiles work together in Romans, okay? So there's a whole section there, all right? And then we have sections that talk about first to Jerusalem then all of Judea, right? And we, we talk about those. We've had that verse discussed, okay? So clearly at some point, he is going to give the instruction to go further, like even in the Great Commission, to the ends of the earth. He's not going to limit it, but for now, it appears that he's limiting it. So a number of weeks ago when we were looking at Matthew, if you remember Angela was here, she said Matthew is racist, right? He's actually preferring only the Jews. It's true that Matthew's gospel primarily focuses on a Jewish audience. All right, so he is going to highlight those things even more. But just to be clear, we are going to have in the same book, by the end of the book, the Great Commission comes from Matthew to go to the ends of the earth. So it seems like Jesus is for now saying the primary thing we're doing today in this mission is to go to the Jews and to preach the gospel. You notice this theme over and over that Jesus is slowly letting out the news? I mean, he tells the one person, like, don't tell anybody that I healed you. That happens a number of times in Matthew. He's slowly letting out the news. He doesn't want it all to come at once. He's building to a conclusion, and he's trying to let it out slowly. So we have to at least notice that that's happening here. Anything else you notice in here? I mean, one thing is, I notice that raise the dead is in here. You guys anybody notice that? I mean, he's commanding them to raise the dead. Some people are like, that's spiritual. He means the spiritually dead. I don't think so. Remember, Jesus' miracles just concluded. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, he raised a dead person. He's going to raise a few more. So he's actually giving authority to his disciples to raise the dead. And you know that they will later in the book of Acts. There's a recorded instances of them doing that. All right, so that's a pretty powerful thing to give. What do you see? I think it's interesting when he says, don't take a staff, don't take an extra tunic, and don't... He wants you to go naked, right? Is that what he's saying? No, yeah, I mean, this is kind of an interesting thing that he's saying. By the way, the take no bag, okay, the word take no 
is better translated as do not obtain one. So some people have argued, like, does that mean don't go out of your way to get another one or just use what you have? There's actually a great controversy over the don't take a staff because in another gospel he says take your staff. All right? So some people have focused very clearly on this word extra. You see where the word extra is? Extra tunic, sandals, or staff. Some people think they mean they're all connected in the original language in Greek that they meant don't take another tunic, sandal, or staff. Like just have the one you have. So you're right that he's commanding them to keep what they have but you could read it as saying, don't even take those other things. Like, clearly no gold, silver, no bag, okay, no sandals or a staff. Or you could read them as no extra tunic, sandals, or staff. Just take the one you have. But that contrasts a lot with the way we do missions work, isn't it? Have you thought about that? You know? I've been on short-term mission trips, right? We tell our guys, like, no more than two bags, right? Like, we're coming off the airplane with, like, these two gargantuan <laughs> bags walking, you know? And like, you know, like the missions experience I've had four years in a row is going to Russia. We'd bring like, you know, seven people on the team and 14 humongous bags, you know. And the people like would look at us like, what are you doing? You know, we're coming off the, you clearly knew we were Americans, right? Just by the amount of luggage we brought onto the field. Why is he telling them not to take all this stuff? You kind of hit on it already. What's the reason? Um, so you can have faith that it'll be provided for you. Yeah. He's kind of setting up a, a reliance on God, right from the start, like a mandatory reliance. Like you don't have a choice because if you don't take those things, then you have to rely. Jeremy. In the NASB, which is a more, more, more literal translation, they actually have, it says, freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper. So don't acquire these things. And I think part of that may be, you know, I've given you and, and now you're receiving this so when you're going out and doing these things, don't take gold for it. Don't take things for it, because then it looks like, you know, hey, you know, give me a few pieces of gold, right, and I'll, I'll do this trick for you, and I'll, I'll heal this person or raise them. There's a very good reason, I'm glad you brought that up, because at the very end of this passage, the last part here says, the worker is worth his keep. And that leads us to an interesting question about what Jeremy's bringing up, and also what Jesus was instructing. It's true that at this time it was customary for people to go out there and perform services, spiritual services, and get money for them. He may very well be instructing them not to do that specifically. So on one level you could see him saying, don't take it with you. On another level you could say, don't get it while you're there. But he throws in this part about the worker is worth his keep. So the question that arises is, what does this mean for us in ministry? Now some of you guys may never go into full-time ministry, and some of you may spend the rest of your life in the other choice. You could be in full-time ministry, or you could spend your life doing what we're supposed to be doing in ministry while we do something else as well, what I call being bivocational. All right, so there's like full-time supported ministry and being bivocational. Is it a better standard for us to just throw ourselves into supported ministry, which is kind of what these disciples are doing? Because the expectation here, as you'll see from a few verses in a minute that I'll come to, is you're going to go from town to town, and you're just going to hope that people will put you up, and that they will receive you, and then they'll tell you what to do if they don't receive you. But you are supposed to rely on others. Is this a commandment, in other words, that the best thing to do is to have supported people like this, or does this apply to just missionaries? Does this apply to people? What do you think? 
No, because I look at Paul's life and how Paul was a tent maker and would go to work from town to town to make his wages. And he wouldn't take anything unless it was to take back to Jerusalem for the suffering church. Okay, let's look at Paul. Here's a couple of verses from Paul to weigh against what's happening here. Paul, instructing Timothy and teaching him how he should act, says this, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. I love this verse. <laughs> For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. All right? So clearly Paul is teaching that you can participate and earn a keep this way. He's setting it up that you are supposed to get some of the fruits. Paul asked the Corinthian church, who he seems to constantly be scolding, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel? Of God do you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. So there's Paul talking about being supported, while at the same time he's talking to people who he wouldn't take their support because he felt it was wrong. In fact, he goes on to actually say that. He's, Paul's pretty angry with the Corinthians, you can tell here. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So what's Paul coming down on? Which side? It seems like he's using both. There are times when we're supposed to receive support. There's times when we're supposed to just go out there and God will provide everything. We've had this discussion among some people in this group. When is it right for us to just keep working and ministering? When is it right for us to enter into full-time supported ministry? Believe it or not, there's a number of commentators, when they look at this passage, they actually set out the pros and cons right in the middle of it. So I thought it'd be a good idea to look at some of them. Just because some of you may be wondering, as a real application right out of this text, when Jesus commands his 12 to go out, and take nothing with them, and rely on the people they minister to. What's the advantage of doing that? Versus what Paul is saying, receiving support, whereas other times he's actually working as a tent maker, as Scott pointed out, so that he wouldn't have to receive from anybody. What's the pros and cons? Look at some of them. I mean, if you're in a supported ministry, you can pay full-time attention to ministry, whereas if you're working like all of us, your time is divided. On the other hand, if you're in a supported ministry, you've got to spend your whole time trying to raise support and be dependent on that support, which that leads to a lot of compromises sometimes about what your ministry might be like or worry that you'll have something to do. If you're bivocational, you're financially independent, but you know, sometimes that leads to pride, that we're proud that we're not dependent on anyone. If you're supported, you're directly accountable to a body, maybe a church body, maybe a ministry, maybe a nonprofit. Maybe even just the people who are supporting you. When you're bivocational, you often lack any kind of accountability. We've seen a lot of places in our churches that have come down lately because of lack of accountability to anyone. When you're in a supported ministry, you're often isolated from the world because you're serving the needs of the body. Whereas if you're in a bivocational ministry, you have to be out there in the world doing something. I'm going to tell you that I don't know that one is better than the other. 
But I want to be clear that when we read verses like this, I've, I've read, and as I was reading and researching this week, there are people who took Jesus' model and said, you see, this is what this means. But Paul kind of weighs the other side. There's this kind of balance that for some periods of time, like maybe in your mission, maybe in your time, there are times when you say, I need to just rely on the Lord and go out there and do it. But there's something very interesting going on in this part where he's sending people out. You notice the first part when he said that I want you to do certain things, like I want you to heal diseases and sickness, raise dead, cleanse leprosy, drive out demons, and then he tells them not to take anything with them. And I actually think there's a strong connection between the faith that we can gain when we're serving the Lord because we're totally dependent on him. And if, and if I could say it in English, many people have reported when they've gone out and stepped out in faith, either on the mission field or in ministry, where they're totally in over their head, except for the grace of God saving them, that that's the part where they find that their ministry is the most effective, and a better way to say it is the most miraculous. I've experienced it a little bit, but I've heard from a number of people that, that when we step out in faith and we're totally dependent on God, amazing things start to happen. And I believe there's a connection. I believe it's right here. I believe there's a reason that in wisdom he said, you can do these things, but you need to be dependent. Because later in Matthew, we're going to see that verse where the person comes to Jesus and says, hey, I came to your disciples and asked them to heal this guy. They couldn't do it. And Jesus' response to the disciples, why they couldn't do it, what is it? Lack of faith. So there is this connection. I'm not going to stake like it's explicit. I just believe that it's there for a reason. I believe Jesus' wisdom is telling people that when you're on your own and when you depend on me, those are the places where you will most find that you will be able to do these things. When we depend on the material, we seem to be less spiritual for some reason. All right, let's keep going. So now he tells them what to do when you get there. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. So I've heard repeated in here a number of times that we're supposed to be wise as serpents or shrewd as snakes, as it says here, innocent as doves. So here it is in context. What does it mean? Yeah, what does it mean? Basically, just be wise. Like, don't just walk into any home. Like, be wise where you're going. Kind of like, don't throw your pearls to swine or whatever it was that he was saying. Like, just be smart what home you're going to and the people that you're around. But keep yourself as innocent as doves. Like, don't try not to sin. Don't, like, do things that are wrong. Okay. What it, where does it connect it to in context here? Yeah. Well, I'm a little confused because I know earlier in Scripture, back in Genesis, the snake serpent was considered a like, demonic thing. That's why I'm not understanding where, why he throws that in. Some people are troubled by that because they see the snake as not something we should be like. Because if you're going to say biblically the snake, everybody thinks of Satan. They think of the garden. That's what they think of, right? Okay, so let's clarify what he's saying, this wise as serpents thing, or this, this uh, shrewd as snakes. 
this is kind of a proverb he's quoting, not like a biblical proverb, just something that's in, that is around at the time probably that snakes were seen to have the quality of being wise, shrewd, cunning, all right? So he is saying that, like, be that way, but in what context? I mean, it's not just dropped into the verse, is it? Read the line before it, because so often we miss this when we cite this verse. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Yeah. It makes sense even, you know, let's say you're doing ministry in a high a context of high gain activity. There are certain things you won't do in that case that, that we here wouldn't think about because there isn't a danger of, you know, somebody me walking down the street, somebody pulling a gun to the back of my head, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's what he's saying here. But isn't the Lord just going to protect you? <laughs> that doesn't mean you don't do act in a so. smart way, though. You know, I mean, like, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. You're supposed to have faith, right? God will, God's got your back. But it doesn't say that. Okay, I agree with you. It doesn't say that. I, I totally agree. And the reason I'm pushing back is because I've heard it said so many times. And I want to be clear that I don't see it saying it either. Jeremy. The reason he sends them to the Jews first and not the Gentiles is a practical reason. All the advice he gives here is practical reason. He's saying, look, I'm going to send you the Jews and... Here's a list of things, right? Don't do these things because they're used to that. And um, I'm, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I mean, they're totally going to get that. Uh, uh, be, let's be smart about this. Who are the wolves? Who are the wolves, though? I mean, if they're going directly to a Jewish audience, are the Jewish people wolves? Yes. It could be any number of people. Okay, good. It could be anybody. Wolves are people who are going to basically tear them apart, right? People who are going to reject them or worse, hurt them. Because he's moving into that direction. He's going to start talking about persecution in a moment. But he is saying, I'm going to send you out into dangerous places. Or maybe just people who will reject you. We don't know. It's anywhere from rejection to outright death, which he'll now start commenting on in the next few verses. So I'm peering ahead and I have that advantage. But that's where he's about to go. So when we talk about sheep among wolves, and he says, be wise as serpents, what about the innocent part? Innocent as doves. I mean, the word innocent there really is pure, set apart. I think it's like to be blameless, too, because if someone's attacking you uh, and putting you down and, and, and persecuting you, to be innocent and pure, so kind of like when there is persecution, when there is judgment on you from the town or from the city or from the home, they really don't have any reason for it. Okay. Ben? I wonder if it's related to the, the verse, if anyone will not welcome you, just shake the dust off your feet. Kind of that aspect of innocence, like, it's not up to them to declare judgment on these people who aren't listening, but, like, they're innocent and God's going to be doing the judgment. Yeah. Yeah, there is some of that. Although the irony is, and this is like an advanced footnote irony, is the disciples will judge, ultimately, but later. 1 Corinthians 6.2 tells us the disciples, and maybe all believers, will judge the unrighteous along with God, which is something we don't usually think about. So just as a twist, read 1 Corinthians 6 too. All right, so I think there's a context here. I think Morgan's right. Like You can't just go into the most dangerous places unwisely. All right, We recently saw this in the church. You guys remember when the South Korean missionaries went into Afghanistan and got kidnapped and a couple of them got killed and then the whole nation had to ransom them to get them back? There's been a lot of split in the church. Some people, and Philip rightly pointed out, there's nowhere in the text where it says that God will just got you covered no matter what.
but there are some people in the church who are arguing that it is our duty to go into the most dangerous place in the world and rush in. I don't totally disagree with that, but I see him cautioning us when he sends us out as well. That there are also whole segments of the church saying, hey, look, there's just some things that are just downright crazy. We're still struggling with this to this day because there's lots of people who just think the best thing to do is go into the most dangerous place. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying that's wrong. But this verse seems to be in the context of sending out sheep among wolves, asking us to be wise about how we do that while still staying pure. Okay? Just, just an observation. Now he starts talking about persecution. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He concludes with this, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more members of his household? Beelzebub, of course, refers to a nickname for Satan or Lord of the Flies, and Jesus is going to be called that and has been called that for his miraculous powers. He's saying, hey, look, if they attribute things that I've done to Satan, they're going to attribute even more to you. But let's go back to this for a moment. He is clearly starting to foreshadow things that are going to come beyond just this little outing they're taking, this little two-by-two mission he's sending them on. He's starting to talk about councils and synagogues and kings and governors, and all of a sudden, he's talking about the Gentiles again. So he's just told them, don't go to the Gentile town, so he's clearly looking past all that. And he's starting to foreshadow all the things that are going to come in persecution of the church. Matthew, of course, writing this gospel many, many years later, and it could be even after the destruction of the temple, depending on when you think Matthew is written, is going to make sure to highlight this in his gospel because by this point, the persecution on the church is probably in full swing. So he's reminding them clearly as he writes the gospel of the words of Christ who foreshadowed these things and told them they would come. Look at some of this stuff. It sounds pretty bad. I mean, when has our Christianity ever been this bad? But it is somewhere else in the world, just not us. Brother against brother, father against child, children rebelling against parents, having them put to death. Some pretty crazy stuff. You know, in the world, this is happening around us. It's just not happening to us. And I just wonder, like, what we would do if this happened to us. How our church would be if we were having to face this kind of persecution. Some people think that he was just talking about the biblical time. I think he was talking about all his disciples at some point might go through this. And we've seen this in countries from all over the Middle East to China. We've seen other places where believers have had to endure these kinds of things. They endure them to this day. Go to Voice of the Martyrs and just read all the stories 
of people who still are having to endure this now. It's just an observation to make that while we sit in here in comfort, there are brothers and sisters in our faith that are going through this right now. And I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't be honoring them just to pass through this without mentioning that this is still going on. Okay, let's talk about that last line. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does that mean? Remember, he's sending them out. And he adds this at the end. So, what would this mean to you if you're a disciple, if you're the one that never gets men- mentioned, like Bartholomew? Okay, you're Bartholomew. Or you're Thomas, the slow one. And Jesus just says, I tell you the truth, you're not going to finish going through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What's that mean? Yeah. You, what my thought is, like, maybe this might be a cop-out answer, but like, could it be construed that um, the idea of the Son of Man, Jesus coming back from the dead, that like, in a sense that that's sort of like, okay, yes, he is the Son of Man, like, that he is the Son of God, like, that he is that filling that role, um, and that's him coming into that role very clearly, potentially. Okay. That's one potential. Anyone else? One of two things. Like what Philip said, it's either maybe referencing the rising of Christ after he was crucified or the, um, like when Christ comes back. So that's the Son of Man comes. You're interpreting that part. Right. What does it mean that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel? Yeah, I don't think you can look at this as a, uh, a literal... Thing. I think it's a prophetic saying. You can really clearly make the case throughout basically all the Gospels and the Acts that the early disciples didn't think they were going to be around very long. <laughs> like they literally thought the end of the world was coming, and in Paul's writings as well. Is it fair so, to get it out of this though? I mean, if you heard Jesus say this to you, like, I'm sending you out now, and you're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I would say it's a possibility that they thought of that, or at least... It at least, at minimum, it makes them think that the world's probably not lasting. That's what I'm saying. I think they would have understood this as a prophetical saying of some sort. I'm not sure if they would have said, okay, that means, you know, it's, it's not happening. Maybe that's a possibility, but at least they're sitting there going, okay, like the end of the world is coming sometime soon. Okay, and we know they thought that, right? Because lots of people, including Paul, thought it was imminent. Okay, Jeremy. I'm just looking at a different translation, and it throws a different word in here that makes it more perplexing. It says, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, which could imply that when you've gone through the cities, then the Son of Man comes. So, I mean, it, I don't, I, it's interesting that the difference between the word until and before, I, and I've tried switching the sentences around to put the until... The Son of Man comes first and then the rest of it. And I don't think it makes it any clearer. But. What would that mean to you, though, then? If you, put that, if you read it the way you just read it right now, how would you interpret that? One possible interpretation is now you really have to go out, right, until all the world, and, and when you finally reach that one last people group that hasn't heard about Jesus, then the Son of Man comes back. Which people group, though? Well, He's pretty clear which people group it is. Well, like, he's talking about a specific people group. The only other thing I'm thinking is that the going through the cities of Israel, just because in the context of what it's talking about with persecution, the idea that when he says when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. So it could be, well, maybe, 
you're not gonna like finish crossing off the okay, well I've been persecuted here, I've been persecuted here, but like they won't have been persecuted in every city before this so like don't give up like hey no, not everybody's gonna kick you out. Okay, the only member of the nation of Israel here, like go ahead, wait, what does this mean? <laughs> I'm hoping that it's kind of one of two things. Maybe it's like this commission that says like people are not gonna stop witnessing until Christ comes back. Like it's gonna be an ongoing struggle, like this cycle maybe to the future, like it's gonna continue to happen. Or some of the other things that we've talked about. Because if he is like maybe the resurrection of her, because if he is talking about like the rapture, if it's like a foreshadowing of like Christ's return, like the real return or whatever, I have a problem with this. And like I'll tell you this is the only thing in Christianity that sometimes shakes me and not that I, you know, believe that it's false or ever would, but when I see the disciples like thinking Christ is coming back and he's like the world's ending and it doesn't and then meanwhile how many thousands of years later we're still here and there's all these crazy people nowadays that say that and they like you know they throw out a date and then that doesn't happen and then it gets me thinking like it seems so eminent back then and it's been so many thousands of years and it clearly was nothing as close nearly as close to what they thought. Well, I totally agree with you. There's a lot of crazy people today who are still throwing out dates. Um, I think there's, there's another thought is uh, that it's a self-reference, obviously. Because the whole this whole second coming thing would not have registered to them. We're, we're reading that in. Uh, there, there's no way. They, they didn't have that conception of the Messiah. That's why they're kind of upset when Jesus went to the cross, right? So I tell you the truth. You know, you will not finish going through the cities. He's referring to himself, and he's already come, right? So before the Son of Man comes, he's already come. Okay, let me tell you let me tell you that this is one of the most difficult passages that people have debated. Clearly it tripped up the disciples enough that they thought he was coming back soon. But it's probably not clearly hearing some of what he said. First of all, finish going through the cities of Israel. Either that literally means going to every city in Israel at the time. Some people believe it means reaching every Jewish person in Israel at the time. Some people today have expanded it, which I don't think is warranted, to mean every Jewish person in the world until all of them have been reached. And of course, what does that mean? You know, they see here, like going through the cities, does that mean just preaching at them, converting everybody? People who are trying to explain why he's still not coming back are saying, because we haven't converted all the Jews yet. <laughs> that's what it means. I don't think that's what he meant. Because if you look at the second one, before the Son of Man comes, there's two interpretations of that. It either means before the Son of Man is vindicated, glorified after the resurrection, or it means when he comes again. But see, I don't see the word again in there. We all read it when we read the Son of Man comes. We just insert the word again. It's not actually in there. What is the Son of Man referring to? Oftentimes he's citing a scripture from the book of Daniel, and the Son of Man comes to be glorified. So maybe it's referring to his post-resurrection glory. I'm not saying that with certainty. I'm saying that that seems to be a closer reading of what he's really saying. Because we, when we think of the Son of Man comes, we just put the word again in there. But it's actually not saying that directly. Leave it up there. It's, it's our duty to look at all the parts of the text. All right, so I'm going to kind of, yeah, I'll, last comment on it. Go ahead. Kind of perplexing to me that they could be so close to God and have so much faith to the point where they're starting the church and they, they actually themselves can cause miracles and heal people and cast out demons and all this, and that they can get that part of the theology so wrong. 
like to even to have known Christ and like to really be close and after he rose and to be praying and so in the word and spiritual and out on faith and and to get that part of the theology so wrong that like Christ is coming before we die like it is now it's like 20 years or like whatever 10 years get you know that's perplexing to me I agree I think it does shake our faith sometimes when we think about that but it's not the only thing we get wrong about God even when we're face to face with him all the time. And these same disciples, as I think Morgan pointed out, these same disciples, when he was like, okay, now I'm going to die. And they're like, no, no, we'll fight for you. And you're like, what? Like, you, you're, you're walking with him, right? And you're still not getting what he's about to do? Okay, so maybe Thomas isn't alone in riding the short bus on this one. Maybe all of them at times have had these issues. Maybe we do. I mean, maybe we're just as deluded sometimes in the things that we think. But yeah, that's something that I think we have to talk about more at some point because I think they misunderstood the extent of God's patience in waiting for this to happen. We've talked about why God has waited sometimes in other series, but I think they didn't see that. It's continued to be misunderstood because people read into it and then... Every generation thinks Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. Let's just, I mean, from, from Paul to Sarah Palin, apparently. Every generation thinks that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. Um, and we could talk about why, but I think it has a lot more to do with our psychology than any reading of theology. Yeah. Well, and I was just thinking, even in just a little bit of a defense of that, like the, the theology behind it is, well, the day and hour is unknown. And so it's like, it's not like they, Jesus said it was unknown. They just sort of, well, maybe it's now. It's... Well, there's some things that make sense to me that maybe, like, I look back and I don't know that made sense to them. Like, Jesus dies and he raises from the dead, and they're thinking, this is the most amazing thing ever. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is God. We saw him go to heaven, right? He's coming back soon. Except that his last words before he went up to heaven are, go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel, right? So in my mind, sometimes when I hear that, I go, you didn't think that was going to take some time? You know, like, how long did you think it was going to take to go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel and disciple them, right? You thought, what, 20 years should be good? We get to China and Australia and all those other places where there might be people? Like, there are clues in the scriptures that right from Jesus' own words, he was going to set out a timetable that's different than what they expected. But, again, I don't blame people who are in the midst of these miraculous things that are going on when they're witnessing God incarnate that their whole view of the world gets skewed to imagine that everything is happening now. It's now. This is the time because they've been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come and now he's come and it's supposed to change everything except they missed those parts like about the assignment that he was giving them. Okay? What wigs me out is that today we still don't get that part. You know, like today there's still date setters running around the globe. And so I could, I excuse those people a lot more easily because they were living in these amazing times. Okay? Let me close this way. There's this verse in here that says about shaking the dust off your feet. When do we do it? And I'm just going to leave it as a question because I don't know that there's an answer. Jesus clearly instructed certain people at times if they rejected the message to shake the dust off their feet and walk out of town. Look, in our Western world, this is unbelievable. That you could go to somebody's house, knock on their door that you don't know, and say, I'd like to stay with you. And I have some important news to tell you. And that they would open the door, let you in, feed you. I mean, in this day and age, who would feed you? You know, like bring you in, feed you, put you up for the night. And they wouldn't even ask you what your business was until you were ready to share with them. This is a different world than we live in. We can't even conceive of this. 
But there were people who were just going to reject them, reject the message, throw them out. And Jesus was saying, shake the dust off your feet. Next week, we kind of continue with this theme of when these things happen. And I want to just leave it for a moment for you to think about. When do we shake the dust off our feet? Most of the testimonies I hear in the church go like this. Like, I told them about the gospel, and they didn't believe, and I told them, and I told them, and I told them, and I told them, and 20 years later, they accepted Christ, right? Imagine if you had just told them once or twice, and they said, no, that's crazy talk. And you just stood up, took off your shoes, you know, (laughs) clapped them together like this, (laughs) and walked out. When do we persevere? When do we stick with it with somebody? Why did he tell them to shake the dust off their feet? Does it have something to do with the rejection of the nature of it? I just want to leave that for you to think about because most of us have to make those choices in life. There are times when you will know people who don't know the Lord and you'll decide like after you've told them once or twice, go forget it. You know what? It's not me. It's not my job. Somebody else. I'm shaking the dust off my feet because that's part of our responsibility to know when to do that and when not to. The gospel message is in our hands. Jesus left it for us. All right? He's not taking out any ads, no billboards, no newspaper ads. It's in our hands to tell the gospel. So we have a duty. And remember there's that little part about swine and pigs and pearls and all that stuff that we looked at that might come into play. So I'll leave that hanging right there. Let's close off and come back next week and figure out what Jesus is telling us about how to take this gospel message to other people. Let's pray. Lord, I can only imagine that when your disciples heard some of these things, they were just struck with the same kind of awe that we are tonight, like, what's up with all these instructions? Isn't there an easier way to do the things? Why are you telling us to do it this harder way? Lord, I know that's the truth in our life. You've laid out so many things for us, and each of us in this room has decided many times, maybe even tonight, to just do it our way. Asking you, like, why do I always have to do things the hard way, Lord? It seems like this would be better. Teach us your wisdom, Lord, so that we can see into your scriptures what it is you want us to do. And more importantly, if you would allow us, Lord, teach us why. More than just crazy rules meant to make things difficult, but truly the way of life. Pray all this in your name. Amen.